Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. Today's episode was taped live in front of a virtual audience and featured four panelists discussing the intersection of climate and security in Colombia. The experts and policymakers featured in this conversation bring diverse backgrounds and perspectives on the links between climate variability and security in an historically conflict-prone country. This episode is part of a series of episodes examining the relationship between climate and security produced in partnership with CGIAR, the world's largest global agricultural innovation network. Please follow the links in the show notes of this episode to sign up for the next live recording of the podcast as part of the series. And of course, you can view all previous episodes that were included in this series by visiting globaldispatchespodcast.com. And now here is the episode taped live in front of a virtual audience. Welcome, everyone. My name is Mark Leon Goldberg. I am editor of UN Dispatch and host of the Global Dispatches podcast. And today's conversation about climate security in Colombia is being recorded as a live taping of the podcast. For most of Colombia's history, it has been a country in conflict. These conflicts have taken different forms and have been driven by a multitude of factors over the years. Yet, despite endemic violence, Colombia has evolved into an upper middle income country. Still, high standards of living coexist with levels of poverty and malnutrition more common in least developed countries. And like many countries, the increasing impact of climate change in Colombia is a major force for social disruption. And given Colombia's long history of violent conflict, there is an understandable urgency for analyzing the relationship between climate variability and conflict in the Colombian context. And that is very much our task today. We have a variety of speakers, each bringing a different perspective to questions around the nature of conflict in Colombia today, the relationship between climate variability and conflict in Colombia, and measures that are being taken to reduce the potential impact of climate variability on conflict in the country. Uh, and with that, I would like to introduce our panelists. Uh, Angelica Retberg is a professor of political science at the Universidad de los Andes in Bogota, Colombia. She was part of the government delegation that tried to negotiate with the ELN, which is one of the older insurgent groups that has not signed a peace agreement with the government. Welcome to Angelica. Frank Pearl is a former Minister of Environment of Colombia, the High Presidential Commissioner for Reintegration and Senior Lead Peace Negotiator during the peace talks between the Colombian government and the FARC, which led to the peace agreement in 2016. He was also Chief Negotiator with the ELN. Juan Lucas Restrepo is director of the Alliance between Bioversity International and the International Center for Tropical Agriculture with CGIAR. Welcome. And Governor Fernando Luis Suarez is acting governor of the Antioquia Department, former secretary of government during the several periods, and a key player in the efforts of city and regional governments have deployed since the 1990s to counter different waves of political and criminal violence in the department. Now, Governor Suarez will not be joining us live. Rather, a few days ago, Diego Osorio of CGIAR interviewed the governor. Midway through today's conversation, we will play video from his portion of the interview. Uh, the interview was conducted in Spanish, and I will read an English translation of the questions which were posed to him, and his responses will be dubbed over in uh, English from Spanish. Uh, thank you, and with that, let us kick off. Uh, Angelica, I'd like to pose the first question 
to you. Uh, given your academic and practical experiences, I'm very interested in kind of having you give us an accurate definition of post-conflict Colombia today. Can you help us understand the reality of conflict in Colombia in 2020? Thank you, Mark. Good morning, everybody. Thanks so much for inviting me to this wonderful panel and, and to as tiny as ever. Uh, yes, uh, I, I'll be happy to try to approach some form of definition or, or perhaps rather uh, uh, submit or contribute a few factors that we should include in our discussion of the topic. First of all, as you all know, 2016 was a very important year for Colombia as during that year uh, a peace agreement was signed between the government and FARC, uh, which has been implemented ever since. Uh, we are now celebrating four years since that uh, signature. Um, since then, the FARC, uh, which was one of Latin America's largest guerrilla groups, has turned into a political party with uh, representation in the National Congress. In addition to that, a very ambitious uh, transitional justice structure has been put into place, including a peace tribunal, a, a truth commission and, and, a, and, a, and an office for the search for disappeared people, persons, uh, and, and open and perhaps more importantly, over 9,000 fighters demobilized, turned in their weapons and are now um, in, the, in the process of, of leading civilian lives in different areas of the country. At the same time, of course, as you all know, peace agreements are necessary but insufficient for building peace. Uh, there are several processes still in Mars, still, in, still, still underway, uh, showing the many challenges Colombia still faces. One, very important one of these would be uh, the ongoing trade in illicit crops and also illegal gold mining, both of which are topics that feed into the discussion of, in, of, of, of the state of the environment in Colombia because both have contributed to deteriorating environmental conditions in the areas where they're grown or extracted. Uh, in addition to that, as you know, we have a, a very tense bilateral relationship with Venezuela, which makes, uh, makes it complicated to deal with some of the security challenges that remain in the country. Uh, uh, and that finally has also led to an important flow of migrants into the country uh, who compete with other vulnerable society, with, with other vulnerable groups over limited resources uh, and, and government attention. So, so, so I would say that Colombia is well into the process of building lasting peace. We, we, we may describe this as, as peace and muddling through modus because of course, peace is not implemented uh, by the book. It, it's, it's implemented the way in which uh, nego it, the ongoing negotiations uh, between the, among different sectors of society are, are happy to, to, to proceed. Uh, there is a limited uh, amount of resources available despite the, the, the ongoing support by the international community. Uh, so, so many challenges remain, which of also uh, at this point um, uh, undergirded by, by the challenges that posed by the pandemic that the country as well as the rest of the world has been facing. Um, I would perhaps just like to stress that Colombia uh, has a long history of violence and of armed conflict, uh, but it also has a long uh, history of attempting to overcome the challenges and the legacies of this. So in the process of dealing with conflict, a very ambitious uh, and widespread peace building infrastructure has been developed in the country. And I think that's one of the main, uh, one of the many assets that the country has faced with the challenges now. Uh, there are institutions in place to deal with the challenges or with the problems for displaced populations. There are quite ambitious institutions also in place of which Frank Pearl, of course, was a part of as well, dealing with demobilized populations. Uh, there's a huge victims units tending to the needs of over 9 million victims that have registered with the Colombian state. So yes, there are many, but there also have been many efforts to overcome uh, these problems and to address uh, 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 um, the, the needs still emerge from, from such, from such long-lasting uh, conflict and violence in the country. Uh, thank you. Uh, and now I wanted to turn to Frank Pearl. Uh, you were Minister of the Environment in Colombia and then played a central role in the peace negotiations with uh, FARC, which makes you well suited to analyze the relationship between climate variability and conflict. What have been some key trends in the evolution of environmental priorities in Colombia and how have these trends impacted conflict, conflict resolution and peace building, you know, if at all? 
And perhaps more broadly, to what extent is climate change and environmental factors part of the public discourse about conflict in Colombia? Well, uh, good morning, everybody. I think we're a country which is new in terms of uh, having conscious about the environment and environmental policies. Uh, I would say that uh, in the last years, we've had uh, like three stages. And by the last years, I mean after 1993, when we had law 1999, which created the National Environmental System and uh, the Ministry of, of Environment. So I think we had uh, 14 years in which uh, the system was created, policies were enacted, and uh, there was uh, an important effort for institutions to be strengthened. Uh, so we, we spent from 1993 until, I guess, 2007, uh, a tremendous amount of effort in putting those policies and institutions to work on a nationwide basis. Basically, what we did was to build a ministry and to build a set of regional institutions which are, are called the, the regional uh, corporations. Those corporations have autonomy and a lot of budget and power. And one of the challenges that we faced uh, in that phase and we still face today is to be able uh, to have adequate coordination in policies and on implementation uh, between those corporations and uh, the central government. Uh, in 2007, if I'm not wrong, uh, the ministry was shut down and we had uh, three or four years uh, in which the environmental issues were, I would say, neglected. Uh, the efforts that uh, had been uh, done before and some of the advances uh, that had been made were lost. And then in 2011, then again, the ministry uh, was uh, reopened. Probably because in 2010, uh, we had a very strong winter wave, which uh, evidenced that Colombia is one of the most vulnerable countries in terms of climate change. And then since 2011, I would say the priorities of the country had been related to building institutions, climate change issues, and the SDGs of which Colombia is an important part of. We were the country that brought to the United Nations system the idea of the SDGs, which is original idea of a Colombian woman, uh, Paula Caballero. And uh, we worked uh, for like for a year and a half within the UN system uh, to be able for that system to approve the SDGs concept to replace the Millennium Development Goals. Uh, in 2015, we had severe droughts all throughout the country. And that also showed the vulnerability that we have in terms of climate change. And I would say that from, from then on, the priority has been to strengthen the system and to uh, adequate the legislative issues with more, more modern mechanisms like environmental, uh, uh, like mechanisms for environmental uh, compensations and, and, and services. Uh, we do have, I guess, two challenges today. Our institutions are today very weak. The system is underfunded. Regional corporations are corrupted and they're managed almost exclusively uh, by political parties uh, with, uh, with, uh, with the technical side of them which exists and it's valuable. Uh, be uh, playing a, a not such an important role. So we have two types of conflicts. The conflict between the technical side of those corporations and the system and the political and corrupted side. And the conflict between central uh, guidelines and policies 
and regional initiatives uh, in in those in those regions. And then uh, an important uh, conflict between the productive sector and the regions and the communities, which is part of the social convul convulsion that we see today in our country. Thank you. Uh, and now I'll turn to Juan Lucas Restrepo. Uh, can you describe some of the food systems work of CGIAR in Colombia and how it relates to our conversation today about climate and security? And maybe probing a bit further, can you also discuss what potential security implications you see resulting from climate change in Colombia? Uh, sure, Mark. It's a pleasure to, to be participating in this important uh, climate uh, security conversation and have uh, uh, Angelica uh, and Frank uh, be uh, with us in this uh, in very important dialogue. So the first thing I want to say is that uh, I'm currently uh, leading an alliance of two CGIR centers uh, with a lot of tradition, Biodiversity International and SEAT. And SEAT is based in Colombia and SEAT has been in Colombia for more than 50 years now working hand in hand with local uh, institutions, basically in moving, you know, and, and promoting progress in uh, some of the most important agricultural value chains uh, in the country, such as, you know, forages, beans, cassava, rice, etc., and, and really having a very uh, important record uh, of impact. In the past years, SEAT uh, became the leader, you know, in the name of uh, CGIAR for all of the climate work. And we've been working uh, very, you know, at, at depth in Latin America, uh, working on a lot of, you know, forecasts and trying to understand how a country uh, such as Colombia is super vulnerable uh, to, unfortunately, to climate change is one of the most vulnerable if you look at uh, some of these scenarios across uh, different countries. And if you read uh, in the invitation uh, to this uh, webinar, we estimated that by 2050, uh, climate change in Colombia uh, could impact up to 3.5 million people or 25% of the agricultural and agroindustry uh, jobs if we don't tackle in an adequate and firm way uh, uh, this this event through uh, you know commitments uh, from mainly from the government on on adaptation and we also estimated that about 80 percent uh, of the crops in about 60 percent of the traditional agricultural areas will be somehow impacted and we uh, even went further to look uh, deeply into some value chains uh, and found for example that our great uh, mild Arabica coffee, Colombian coffee, washed coffee, uh, is at risk, uh, especially in the lower altitudes, given this uh, very significant pressure for, for climate. So Colombia is struggling, and we're seeing, as, as Frank said, uh, with La Nina, uh, not only increases in temperature, but a huge variability in rainfall patterns, where we have too much or too little of water, which is absolutely critical uh, at the landscape uh, level. So basically, our work uh, uh, over time uh, has uh, become uh, trying to understand, of course, how natural resource management, safeguarding and using uh, biodiversity, promoting better livelihoods, as well as social, institutional and economic prosperity, and intrinsically dependent on the best possible incorporation of climate adaptation and mitigation strategies. The climate uh, is at the center of what will happen uh, in relation to welfare institutions uh, and how Colombia will hopefully uh, thrive uh, in the future. So, so uh, this real intimate uh, relationship, of course, uh, can be interpreted as being one between environment uh, and conflict. And what I have seen uh, is sometimes we focus too much on the driver of inequality as a, an explanation for, for conflict. And, and of course, Colombia is a, a country with too much inequality. Any level of inequality is not acceptable, but Colombia's is, is terrible. 
but also conflict has arisen, in my view, from a significant territorial uh, divide, because you know a large part of the country lacks the institutions and the, the infrastructure required, especially in institutional terms, and we are still testing uh, some institutions, some that came from the peace agreement, some that, as Frank mentioned, came from the new environmental uh, system that, you know, are making progress, but that, you know, are still, uh, you know, uh, weak and, uh, and mean, uh, you know, an open room for informality and illegality that, uh, you know, are a key driver for Colombia's, uh, you know, lack of relative uh, stability. So, you know, climate change, environmental degradation makes things worse, and we need to uh, address this uh, when seeking uh, structural solutions to any kind of conflict. Very quickly, uh, you know, the, our alliance is currently uh, devoted to working on large projects uh, of uh, systems for forest conservation, climate protection, red uh, plus uh, and peace building uh, in Colombia. Uh, on top of our more traditional work on crops. And lately, uh, we're very focused and we have understood that it's, it, everything has to do with food systems transformation and how we cross that with uh, what may happen and how we can support uh, territories uh, and their communities over time. Food systems transformation, and we may go deeper into this a, a little bit later, is probably a critical driver uh, of all of this. Uh, thank you. Uh, and now I would like to bring into this conversation Governor Luis Fernando Suarez, who was able to join us earlier. Uh, Governor, your department, which includes Medellin, has been greatly affected by violence and has dealt with regional threats like drug cartels, insurgency, social violence in both urban and rural areas. All of these issues have been present in the department, uh, but it has also been very proactive in developing solutions and has recorded some notable successes in reversing those trends. Now we are dealing with climate change and its implications for conflict. So as an experienced high-level official who has dealt with these phenomena over the years, can you share with us your key ideas in terms of the department's success in dealing with past iterations of violence and how that informs your views on the new wave of threats among which climate change is one of them? Thank you, Diego. A big special greetings. The same to all the panelists. We are very grateful with the consultants group for the Agricole International Investigation for the invitation to this webinar. We are very pleased to participate in it. Colombia has been a country that has been affected by the armed conflict. Antioquia, the Antioquia Department of Subregion, has not been foreign of the situation. We have the presence of armed groups, rebels from the guerrillas. A lot of groups as EPL, M19, FARC, ELN. And that violence from the guerrillas was mutating when the self-defense group or paramilitaries arrived. All this was mixed with an armed violence associated with the narco-traffic. This in Colombia brought a lot of violent death. This has a victim registry of 10 million people and Antioquia has suffered, especially in that conflict, in which we have around 1,800,000 people registered in the Victims National Registry. The picture of this security in Antioquia has been very complex. Medellin was the most violent cities in the 90s. Fortunately, the social resiliency, the social projects, the inversion to address the social inequality have changed that picture. A lot of these illegal groups have been demobilized. The most recent was Los Farc in 2016, after a very long dealing process. It was to achieve to sign the FARC agreement. This brings today a new scenery, more positive, 
but we're still having a lot of challenges and difficulties. We're still having the presence of armed groups in some regions of the department, with no doubt have been associated to the narcotraffic violence and a new criminal modality that is related with the illegal mining or criminal mining. The illegal mineral extraction was an important criminal rent. And looking to the Antiochian map, we have a special focus, a special interest of work for the Low Cauca region. The Antiochian Low Cauca has been historically affected for this violence. And there has been various advantages, very negative, and we have disposed from the Antiochian governation the great alliance of Low Cauca with a huge social investment, but with a direct attack with these criminal structures. Thank you. And Governor, Please tell us why Antioquia declared a climate environmental emergency. How is this a central priority for you and your government? The declaratory of the climate emergency that we had in February from the governor Aníbal Gaviria Correa is a great political decision that generates the visibility of the severe problematic that Antioquia has in the climate subject affectation. The climate emergency has been declared because the reforestation, because the forest fire, because a lot of the municipalities have affectation in the water supply, because of the biodiversity that we have lost, because the inadequate management of the solid waste, because of the pollution on the air, mainly in the metropolitan region of the Abu Valley, because of the inadequate use of the soil, because of the soil degradation. That declaration of the climate emergency opened a positive scenery to make visible the problematic. But more than that, we have to define the greatest bet, the greatest actions that we should confront in the next year to confront that picture that we found in the Antioquia department. Today we are orientated to work in a great alliance for the low Cauca and the great alliance to attend this climate emergency that we have in the Antioquia department. We have an ambition goals in our development plan, which is orientated in the next few years. We will cultivate at least 25 million of trees. For this, we need to alliance with private and public sectors, and we need to establish an alliance with groups from national and international levels. That is maybe the biggest action that we will enterprise in the next years. But additionally, that decision and political look to educate the business leaders, the business leadership. For example, we would like companies that work for the protection of the environment. Today, the concept of sustainability has gained a lot of importance. The action frame of the development of Antioquia has been centered in the 17 goals of sustainable development. A lot of ODS will point our way of action and we schedule that we have to continue in the next year to attend the difficult pictures that we found in the Antioquia department. Uh, thank you, Governor. And finally, to address these situations, the department has devised a strong partnership strategy to address the lethal combination of climate change and conflict in a very conflicted section of the department, the Lower Cauca region. Can you tell us more about this particular initiative? Our great challenge is to recover 10,000 hectares of degraded areas in the Low Cauca region. There, we will sit 11 million of trees, and this shows the picture of the criminal violence that lingers in the Low Cauca. This is still a region with the highest rate of homicide levels. This shows some of the factors that bring instability to the region. There are 9,482 hectares in the Low Cauca, seed with cocaine. But as well, we have a great devastation or degradation generated by the criminal or illegal mining.
From the 848,000 hectares of the low Cauca, 8.5%, that means 72,000 hectares are degraded in the municipalities of the low Cauca for the criminal mine. The principal reason of the soil degradations are extreme weather conditions, soil erosion, human intervention, mining and the illegal cultivates of cocaine. The project that we have structured has different financial ways. We have resources from the management of royalties. We have resources from the PACE funds, resources with allies. But as well, we have resources from OCAT. OCAT peace because these municipalities were declared by the national government as municipalities of the highest affectation for the conflict, and there we work with the development plans with territorial focus. The project was structured with an amount of $34 million. In this moment, we have achieved resources from more than $14 million, and we still have to do big alliances to find resources to cofinance $18.7 million. This shows where are we going to work in all this project. These are the municipalities of Low Cauca and part of the northeast of Antioquia. Here are the municipalities and areas of intervention. And maybe a subject that we believe is very, very important. These are the five modalities of projects that we have a structure to work in these in this subregion mixing two elements that we believe are fundamentals. The first one, wood project or reforestation projects with an enrichment of native species, or mixed projects where we can have reforestation with bee projects, but as well with products that enhance food pantries and the food sovereignty of this region. In the Antioquia department, we have regions of the department that depends of the other regions of the department. The 80 or 90% of the products that the inhabitants consume. And here we have the different phases that we have been working on. We are here in September of 2020. Two days ago, we have signed a contract with Corantioquia, which is the Autonomous Region Corporation. And let's say that all the routes that we have defined in this great alliance to regain the regions of Low Cauca. Uh, thank you, Governor. Uh, and now I'd like to turn back to Angelica Retberg. Uh, looking to the future, what do you see as potential trends in conflict in Colombia and what key factors may impact and influence the trajectory of conflict in the country? So uh, there are, of course, the challenges associated with the ongoing reality of illicit economies in the country. As I already mentioned, uh, the presence of the drug trade uh, the widespread, the illicit crops that are widespread across many areas of the country, in addition to illegal gold mining and mining of other minerals, uh, is a, a source and, and a fuel for ongoing uh, formation of illegal and criminal organizations which cause violence in many regions of the country. Uh, in addition to that, let's not forget that there's one remaining guerrilla group that has not demobilized, has not signed an agreement with the Colombian state, which is the ELN, which was mentioned at the beginning of this discussion. Uh, this group has been able to strengthen itself uh, across the country, along the border with Venezuela and also along the Pacific coast to the west. Uh, and despite the fact that it's a fairly small group, uh, the regions in which it operates uh, really feel its presence. And we have seen boosting violence or bouts of violence in those in those areas of the country. So that is another ongoing uh, source of violence in the country. Uh, in addition to that, uh, there has been a, a, a growing perception of an increase in the in the in the loss of life by human rights defenders, uh, which is many times associated with territories over which illegal actors compete, both for uh, reasons of land titling or because of economies or because of some other challenges related to uh, one of the factors that I already mentioned. So, so there are still important sources causing violence in the country. Uh, in order to overcome these challenges, uh, I would say that first of all, uh, overall, homicides have decreased over the years, and I think that's a trend that should be 
underscored, Colombia has changed a lot in the past generation, despite the fact that some forms of violence uh, persist. Uh, so, so the fact is that also forced displacement has gone down. Um, um, there has been there have been significant efforts to understand what has happened to the country, to address some of the legacies, to address the needs of victims. And I think this all should be mentioned as uh, part of the of the assets or the or the, the achievements that the country has been able to make uh, facing its violent past. Uh, in addition to that, I would also say say and, 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 and I guess reiterate that there has been significant institutional capacity developed both at the national as well as the local levels, uh, which provide to, with the proper mechanisms to address many of these challenges. Uh, it is not it is not the case of a typical war-torn country where you will find a devastated economy and a devastated civil society in contrast, or on the contrary, you'll find a country with, uh, with increasing institutional strength and capacity and with a very vibrant state, uh, I'm sorry, and a very, very vibrant civil society addressing social concerns, trying to overcome uh, the, the impacts of, of, of violence along its, 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 its history. Uh, so, so looking forward to what factors will influence what trend will we we will finally go into. Say that one important uh, aspect of this will be uh, something that Juan Lucas already mentioned, which is the capacity of uh, for, for institutions to address uh, inequality and the way this may sometimes feed into violence, especially feed into the recruitment of youth and minors into illegal criminal organizations. I think there's a clear link between inequality and crime and violence in the country. Uh, in addition to that, of course, there's also the international fact, which is uh, the bilateral relationship with Venezuela, despite the fact that I, I think uh, an international war is highly unlikely. Uh, the fact countries have a very tense relationship and are not collaborating on key issues such as migration, such as uh, the pandemic, such as uh, the management of natural resources along the border, I, I think, represents um, a, a potential risk for uh, ongoing violence in some of these areas. So in, the, in as much as the country is able to address many of these factors, not alone, of course, but also part of an international system that will help it, for instance, address the impacts of the illicit economy, uh, I think it's likely for us to, to with time, uh, be able to proceed to become a much more peaceful society. In the meantime, we still have to work really hard. It's, it's a challenge that most Colombians need to face. It's not something that anyone else will do for us. It depends on our willingness and our capability and our, and our creativity to really develop the mechanisms to overcome all of these challenges. Uh, thank you. Uh, now I will turn uh, to Frank. Uh, Frank, is Colombia ready to address the implications of high levels of social disruption caused by climate change? What does Colombia need to build resilience to climate change and the potential of climate change to exacerbate conflict? What partnerships also do you judge as essential to tackle this problem preemptive, preemptively and proactively? Uh, you might need to unmute, Frank. Thanks. I, I think uh, the challenges that we face in relation to climate change, uh, to violence, to social conflict, have to do with several dimensions of our society. One is the human dimension, the other is the political dimension, and the other one is the technical dimension. I think we do have a challenge in, in our society, in our human dimension. How do we see ourselves? How do we see ourselves in relation to others? How do we see ourselves in terms of our role in society? How do we see our dignity and others' dignities? And how do we legitimize those who think differently? We need a more... Uh, a higher level of consciousness in, in, in the country and probably in the world to be able to acknowledge uh, that those threats are really opportunities for us to change and do things in a better way. Uh, then, the, then come the political dimension. How do we see the political, social, economic, environmental and cultural aspects of our, of our society? But if the human dimension uh, is led towards confrontation, then the political dimension will always be 
led towards confrontation. And unfortunately, that has been our history. I think our task and an opportunity is to break that, that pattern because the technical solutions are just practical matters uh, which can easily be implemented if there's consensus on a higher level. And that applies for environmental, social, cultural, economic, or other types of uh, issues and opportunities that, that we do have. I think that before thinking which alliance can make with the outside, we need to make a strong alliance within ourselves. We need to be able to forge institutional, political, cultural, and social alliances within our country, humanizing the relations amongst us and understanding that there are issues like the environmental issues, that human rights issues, uh, that social conflict, like social conflict issues that should be above differences in politics and differences in the way we see the technical uh, solutions. Once we do that, we, we, which will take time, uh, I think uh, we should set up a roadmap uh, to implement plans in different regions of the country. And that roadmap should include a legal uh, dimension to it, an institutional dimension, an economic, social, political, cultural, and environmental dimension. And uh, by legal, we mean what are the set of rules that need to be changed so that solutions can be implemented. By institutions, I mean what are the institutional capabilities uh, to be able uh, to bring the state and create appropriate market mechanisms in the regions. By economic, I mean where are the resources going to come from, but more importantly, where are those resources be going to be invested and why? By political and social, I mean what are the political and social consensus that we need at a national, regional, and local level in all the regions of our country uh, to be able to have a really long-term plan to overcome these issues, taking into account, of course, the diplomatic, cultural, and environmental aspects uh, in each of the regions of the country. Bottom line, the problem is not political. The problem is not technical. We need to be more conscious and humanize the relations amongst ourselves to be able to recognize those who think differently and to be able to tackle together these issues that our society faces. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much, Frank. And now let me turn to Juan Lucas for the final question. Uh, CGIAR is known for its focus on science. How can CGIAR's work on climate security complement the work of other actors? What can we do to go beyond the silos? Uh, regarding the Columbia case, uh, and in particular on the Bajo Calca project, what role can CGIAR climate security play to support this collective effort. Okay, Mark. Uh, the first thing I, I would like to say related to this is that as we have seen, and there is so much experience, science is essential, but science per se does not resolve anything if it's not well integrated into policy making, into the right uh, way of doing politics, and of course, embedded in institutional strengthening. And we are seeing uh, what damage can be caused, for example, by some world leaders that uh, refute, uh, for example, climate change against so, so much compelling evidence. So that's the kind of the, the, first, the first element. The second one is that uh, we see that, you know, knowledge from science focused on ending hunger and in, in a climate crisis needs also to be very well linked with, for example, SDG 16 on peace, justice and uh, institutions. So it's not uh, science and uh, promoting uh, new yields, uh, closing yield gaps, uh, solving technical issues. 
but it's knowledge from science uh, also supporting how uh, you know SDG 16 can be can be met. Our our group of centers uh, CGIR is currently facing a, a very promising transition where we are shifting from our traditional approach on productivity and as I said closing yield gaps uh, something that was called the green revolution very successful in many ways but also leaving a significant environmental da damage uh, especially into a more complex and fit for purpose approach that integrates uh, for example something that some people don't see can be done uh, agroecological pathways and nat nature based solutions together with the new technologies te te technologies or biotechnologies uh, that are available and need to be uh, used taken advantage uh, of uh, we're also nowadays more and more active uh, in order to, to blend science and institutions and politics and policy in promoting uh, dialogues in Colombia and elsewhere and avenues for what we are calling food systems transformation that acknowledge the huge relevance uh, of landscapes. As of course, we need to make sure we leave enough land for nature but also uh, that we need to change how we produce our food and how we help change the how and what foods uh, we consume. And this is kind of our karma uh, today. I think Colombia and this, and I'm very close to this experience, has a current uh, legal framework that uh, created, uh, given the peace agreements, and this is one of the nice outcomes, institutional outcomes of the peace agreements, one of many, a national agricultural innovation system that you know could be an innovative or presents an innovative framework to tackle uh, these needs for change and in particular there is the opportunity to develop uh, what is called territorial innovation systems that are central to innovation and will help colombia to rebalance this still very significant centralism and integrate better a multiplicity of actors to devise solutions fit for the territories and their communities. And, and this is uh, something very important in terms, especially uh, with uh, what's happening in terms of climate change. Uh, also, of course, uh, you know, with climate change, environmental degradation, and these huge problems we are seeing of malnutrition and obesity, we need, again, to rethink these landscapes uh, to help rebalance them with a, a food system transformation lens that, that I just uh, mentioned. And finally, responding to the last part of the question and listening to Governor uh, Suarez, uh, we feel that you know the approach Antioquia is taking it the right is the right one. It's kind of taking the bulls by the horn, as, as we sometimes say. And we are of course ready to the approaches I presented to work very closely with that important and exemplary effort over uh, well thank you thank you very much thank you to all of our panelists for a very fruitful and interesting discussion we have a lot to think about uh, and now I'm going to turn the camera back over to Diego to offer some concluding remarks thank you all and over to you Diego thank you Mark and thank you to all the panelists now listening to all of you we uh, we realize that uh, there is a lot to be proud of. There's a lot of work to do. And there are four things here that are quite essential. First, climate change is real. And uh, uh, the implications are not just environmental. We have to play with those two distinctions. It's real. The implications will be beyond the environmental system. We have to assume the fact that we have a certain degree of institutionality. Therefore, we will be facing some challenges in that area and so uh, the connection between climate change and conflict is a clear one uh, beyond the causalities that can be demonstrated by academia we see that one thing has an impact on the other and we need to be able to take this in a proactive way uh, in a way we all see the impact of COVID-19 on our societies and COVID-19 is just a preview of what could happen if we continue with systems that are poor or relatively weak in terms of uh, institutionality, resilience, and the capacity to adapt. And so let's just imagine, we all have seen it now, 
if COVID-19 has had this impact on our institutions, the economy, and even the strength of society, then what's going to happen when we have to deal with a sustained impact that is coming from the effects or the combined effects of different variables of climate change that get to be maximized or complemented by different types of conflict and different elements there. One interesting analogy that I can present here is that uh, this webinar reminds me a little bit of uh, a tale by Charles Dickens, Christmas Carol, in which we had the Christmas, the, the ghost of the Christmas past, we also had now the chance to see and talk to the ghost of the Christmas present. And we have a little bit of a peak view of what's going to be the future, the yet to come. And so it's up to us to make the best out of it, to learn from this chance and to really be proactively and engage in trying to take this bull by the horns and see how we can just uh, be ahead of the curve and have a better impact and have a better way of handling things. Um, it is important to also know that, yes, we have to face the priorities that we have right now. And so when we deal with conflict, we have a very immediate objectives to tackle. But this is coming, this is real, and this will basically dwarf what we have to deal with right now. In the future, we're going to have major dimensions, mm -hmm. larger conflicts, and we really need to be prepared. So this is a call for action to work together, to work across disciplines, to work across institutions. The CGR is extremely proud to be part of this, to engage in this area. And we really hope that we're gonna be able to connect with all of you across the Atlantic and different institutions so that we have a common front to deal with climate change and conflict in the future. And Colombia deserves it. Colombia is a fantastic country and we really hope that we're going to be able to structure what we will do in the future, learning from Colombia. Thank you all. And I just leave you now with a video that shows the last uh, of our webinar series on climate change and security because we are aligning narratives and we are looking at a way in which we can all agree in terms of what needs to be done, how it needs to be done and how we will do it in the future. Thank you all. All right. Thank you all for listening. Big thank you to CGIAR for this series. And again, please visit globaldispatchespodcast.com to view previous episodes in this series and click the link in the show notes to sign up for future episodes that are included in this series. Thank you, and we'll see you next time. Bye.